Listener supported. WNYC Studios. How do you feel about living in a city? I think at this age, which is upper 20s, it's fun, it's vibrant. Everything's open again. A lot has changed as far as culture, arts. The the scenery has changed a lot. We actually moved. We miss living in the city. Yeah, we prefer the city. The density of our neighborhood population, the people that we knew, and all the kids on the street. The city has been going down in terms of security, safety. People are like robbing people inside. They rob people on the street. Broad daylight, I'm talking about. It's semi-segregated. Um, it, Still has some growing to do as far as opportunities for persons of color. Prices and things like that in the city is rising, and it's making it difficult for people to live in the city. It's definitely a tale of two cities. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and happy Easter. If you're celebrating today, thanks for spending part of your holiday with us. We begin by talking about the other huge political story that has unfolded over the past week. While former President Donald Trump was being brought up on 34 felony charges in New York, voters in Chicago were going to the polls in a mayoral election that has once again revealed a stark political divide in our nation's largest cities. We saw this in New York, Los Angeles, now Chicago. There's another one coming up in Philadelphia. These cities in which the Democratic Party is dominant, but where that partisan fact obscures hard conversations about how our cities should be run, Debates that, on their face, are about crime and schools, but unavoidably also about race and class. We'll talk about what's happening across the country, but starting with Chicago. And for that, I am thrilled to turn to our partners at WBEZ in Chicago. Natalie Moore is WBEZ's reporter for Race, Class, and Communities. She's a Chicago native who's been writing about the election with history on her mind. Natalie, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Kai. So your newly elected mayor is Brandon Johnson, who ran as a progressive candidate defeating a more conservative Democrat, Paul Vallas. Johnson actually ran to the left of both Vallas and outgoing mayor Lori Lightfoot. And here's a little bit of what he said at his victory party. When we stand on our values as one people, we can reject the false choices that have been presented to us. For so long, we don't have to choose between black, brown, white, young, old, poor, rich. We get to do it for everyone, Chicago. We don't have to choose between toughness and compassion, between the care of our neighbors, our neighbors and keeping our people safe. If tonight is proof of anything, it is proof that those old false choices Do not serve this city any longer. So, Natalie, introduce Brandon Johnson to listeners outside of Chicago. Who is he and what has he stood for? Brandon Johnson is a Cook County board commissioner. He has also been an organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union, um, CTU, and he has been an elementary school teacher 
And he's been part of the union leadership that has um, flexed its political muscle over the past decade. And the Chicago's Teachers Union had decided, you know what, if we want to change the course of how education is done in this city, then we need to organize in the political sphere and put up candidates. And so they've had other candidates in the past who didn't come from CTU um, staff. This is the first time. And I would say six months ago, Brandon Johnson was a little known county commissioner, uh, perhaps even among constituents on the West Side where he represents. And now he is mayor-elect. And this was his winning coalition, Teachers Union and Black voters. That's who really pushed him over the top. Is that right? For the runoff, but let's take a step back to the primary, and that was in February. So we've had five weeks in between, and Brandon Johnson's base was not the black vote. It was progressive white voters mm-hmm. on the north side. And so after you had the in, the incumbent, uh, Lori Lightfoot, did get most of the black vote on the city south and west sides. Right. And so... Those votes were up for grabs, and it was a question of who would get those votes. And those voters went to Brandon Johnson. So he was able to build a coalition going forward. Now, of course, there are black teachers in the teachers' union, and he had other unions support the the service workers. Um, So he comes from that progressive wing. And, you know, we talk about Democrats, (laughs) and, you know, what does that mean to even be a Democrat? In a city like Chicago, where everything is democratic, but there are lots of, excuse me, shades of gray <laughs> that come in when you think about that. And so uh, progressive is also a word that is overused and is diluted. But I would say that Johnson and um, his political upbringing, I would say, are uh, truly the progressive wing. Right. And so then meanwhile, Paul Vallas, who lost the election, he was the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools. He ran a fairly conservative platform, courting the police union, supporting charter schools. Notably, he's white. Um, Brandon Johnson is black. What, what constituency of voters seem most drawn to him and his message? Paul Vallis has run many times. He has run for governor. He has run for mayor. And the last time he ran, he didn't make it to the runoff and he didn't get many votes. So where does where is Chicago right now? Still reeling from the pandemic. The business community has not recovered. Crime has gone up. This is not unique to Chicago. But there is a fear that was there. And Paul Vallis was, um, one could argue, the consensus white candidate. Mm. And he was able to draw off of that. Now, Chicago is segregated. And it's a tale of two cities, but it's just about evenly split between black, Latino and white voters. So I mentioned that Brandon Johnson uh, received part of the the north side. uh, We call them lakefront liberal white vote. But on the southwest and northwest sides where you have city workers, police and firefighters, those are the white communities that went to Ballas. Yeah. Um, Ballas is backed by the Fraternal Order of Police, and their president is um, controversial, <laughs> to say the <laughs> to least. To say the least. And, and um, you know, there, there were a lot of uh, sort of MAGA-lite talking points that had been embraced by Paul Ballas prior to him getting into um, 
the runoff and even into the primary. So that's sort of the landscape that he was working in. And and you wrote, uh, you know, you're, you're bringing up some of this history. You wrote an essay before the election about your childhood in Chicago, being an 11-year-old as Harold Washington ran to became the city's first Black mayor back in 1983, an electrifying moment for Black communities all over the country, um, but also a really difficult moment in Chicago. Um, and And, you know, you write, I hold those memories close because we must remember history no matter how ugly, but I must admit the race between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson frightens me more because their campaigns are stark representations of the tale of two cities. So why did this election frighten you so much? When Harold Washington was mayor, uh, I was in sixth grade when he died in 1987, and he had a formidable white block in the city council who was blocking him. He had a candidate running against him with the tagline, before it's too late. The racial tension in the city was um, was intense. Where we are now in 2023, and it's not just Chicago, but you know we had the so-called racial reckoning in 2020, and we see how the country is fatigued from that. The backlash in schools, like, you know, critical race theory, which we know is not being taught in elementary schools or high schools. So that fatigue and backlash that we're seeing on the national stage with race actually did trickle down to Chicago by having these two candidates who were so different from each other. And that frightened me because I thought no matter who wins, what is that going to mean? Um, The fraternal order of police head was saying if Brandon Johnson wins, then there'll be blood on the streets. Like that's, that's a very scary thing mm. to say. And I, I just didn't know how Chicago would be able to heal. And I can say, you know, the election just happened. Paul Ballas's concession speech was conciliatory. Brandon Johnson, who is generally regarded as an affable, friendly person, um, you know, he was attacking Vallis's record in this runoff, but he has talked about, I'm a mayor for all of Chicago, and I'm talking to the voters who didn't vote for me. So I do think that some healing is needed in this city because of the polarization between the candidates and, and the voters who stood behind them. Yeah. Is it is it a referendum on those bigger issues? I mean, it's, it's, it's of course, tempting to think about it that way. Um, or is it is it a hyper-local thing? How do you take Brandon Johnson's victory in terms of, like, what it says about where Chicago is right now? I think that it shows that they're—now, the voter turnout is super low. We're looking at 35%. We only had 500,000 ballots that were cast— You know, Chicago's tagline is a city that works. And for decades, it has not worked for a lot of people who live in this city, the have and have-nots, the being not at the political table, the legacies of segregation, housing discrimination, unequal schools. And Brandon Johnson's um, speech on election night talked about how he represents the working people how he represents, he's an extension of the civil rights movement. So he did not come in with a mandate. He did not win by a crazy margin. And within that, you know, it was still low voter turnout. So it's not a a mandate, but he does have 
an edge and people wanted this message. And when we think about, for example, crime, for example, you can say what most people know is, well, okay, the police are problematic, but that's the model that we have. So more police will make us safer. And Paul Vallis was saying, I will put more police on the streets. Mm-hmm. And Brandon Johnson is saying, I want to get to the root causes of crime. So I want to reopen mental health clinics. I want to give youth jobs. I want to invest in people. And Natalie, I'm going to stop you there because we're going to talk a lot about crime here coming up, but we need to take a break. I'm talking with Natalie Moore, the reporter for Race, Class, and Communities at WBEZ in Chicago about the Windy City's hotly contested mayoral election. Coming up, we'll talk about how many of the same issues that came up in Chicago have shaped the political debate in a number of big cities in which the Democratic Party's partisan dominance obscures some very real political divides. Stay with us. Ramadan Mubarak, it's Rahima. If you like the show, you should really follow us on Instagram. Our handle is Notes with Kai, just so you don't miss out on what I'm calling Rahimadan. Basically, it's a series of posts that I'm doing where I'll be sharing what I'm cooking and learning throughout Ramadan. I'll be sharing recipes from Somalia, Indonesia, and Bangladesh, which is where my family's from. And we really want to see what's on your iftar table too. So tag our show's handle, Notes with Kai, to share your Instagram posts with us. We also want to hear about the different ways that you're making Ramadan your own. Send us a voicemail and we may play it on the show. Here's how. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. That's it. All right. Thank you. NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. I'm talking with journalist Natalie Moore. She's the race, class, and communities reporter for WBEZ in Chicago, where voters have just selected a progressive Democrat as their new mayor in a hotly contested election. Natalie and I are now joined by Fordham University political scientist Christina Greer. She's the co-host of the podcast FAQ NYC, which covers politics here in New York, as well as the podcast The Blackest Questions from the Grio. Christina, welcome back to Notes from America. Thanks so much for having me, Kai. So three years ago right now, Christina, in most major cities around the country, we were a month into near total shutdown as we tried to figure out COVID. And we were a couple of months away from the global uprisings that followed George Floyd's murder. There was certainly a feeling back then that a new consensus around racial justice and economic equity was developing in our cities. Um, Politically, what has happened in city politics over the past three years? Looking at it nationally, do you see 
uh, any through lines or themes Yeah, well, you know, Kai, we oftentimes jump from local to national, but we have to remember there's a really important state (laughs) conversation Mm -hmm. that has to always go along with Black mayors in particular. So as we celebrate the fact that New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and Houston, you know, four of the largest cities in the United States are all like led by by black mayors, we also have to remember the constraints of any mayor, right? As LBJ says, you know, when when things were getting rough with the civil rights movement in Vietnam, he says, it could be worse, I could be a mayor, right? (laughs) And so, you know, we have to remember that the constraints of a mayor in their relationship with the governor, in their relationship with possibly Republican or Republican light state houses where, you know, these four particular mayors do have Democratic state houses by and large, uh, with the exception of, of Sylvester Turner in, in, in uh, Houston. But, you know, there there's economic constraints that you laid out sort of post-COVID um, that mayors don't always have a free budget. So they their hands are tied in some ways before they even get sworn in. But just to underline something you said there, an assumption I don't know that everybody grasps is, is one of the through lines you're pointing to is there have been a number of Black mayors elected. Oh, listen, we have a long history, and, and, you know, to hear Natalie talk about Harold Washington just makes my heart smile. You know, I mean, we also know that because of Harold Washington, there's a Jesse Jackson. Because of Jesse Jackson, there's a Barack Obama. So there's a clear through line also between local to national politics. Um, and But Black leadership does have a lot of constraints. There are a lot of, you know, as, as Natalie laid out, you know, Chicago's a segregated city. Might I argue that so is New York, so is Philadelphia, so is Washington, D.C., so is Baltimore, so is Atlanta, you know, <laughs> cities that have had long histories of, of either a black mayor or several black mayors um, and the constraints that those black mayors have in dealing with not just white constituents, um, white city council members, uh, white uh, state house members, and then also following national trends and public opinion about crime. And we also have to remember the context in which some of these mayors get elected, right? It's when the tax base has left the city, when there's not only been white flight, but also middle class flight, when, you know, people are feeling as though, you know, crime is through the roof and we don't have any money. So now all of a sudden we see this prevalence of black mayors. So when they're coming into office, we also have to be realistic about the challenges that they immediately face um, because of the circumstances surrounding their election. Um. Well, uh, Natalie, you, before the break, you started talking to us about Brandon Johnson, the, the new mayor of Chicago, the newly elected mayor of Chicago, and his take on crime and policing. It feels like it diverged from what Democrats have done elsewhere um, in campaigns. Um, Johnson kind of felt the pain of voters worried about crime. He talked about feeling scared for his own three kids, about shielding them from, quote, I think he says, the bullets flying right outside our front door. But then he articulated a solution that went beyond policing. So what is his take? And and did it seem that voters who are worried about crime, which he's now going to have to face, like Christina's talking about, that they found it convincing? Well, one thing with Brandon Johnson is that he had to distance himself from comments about defunding the police. Um That phrase is more in the mainstream now, even though it isn't a mainstream embraced idea. But I would say three years ago, um, that was like, oh, my, people were not using (laughs) that that term. And now it is it is debated. And so he had to uh, climb away from from those those kind of comments. But then he had 
this lived experience as living in Chicago in a neighborhood that has seen crime. So I think for people who live in the communities that are most impacted by crime, they don't see policing as the the linchpin as the the solution, whereas perhaps some white voters who live in communities with less violence are worried about violence creeping in. They see policing as the solution. And also their relationship to policing is much different. It isn't, I got pulled over or I, you know, my community on one hand is under-policed and over-policed. So the 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 people who are most affected feel like you know this isn't you we can't police our way out of these issues and they see disinvestment they see that jobs are needed and that's the way that Brandon Johnson talks about combating violence saying that you know it's not about cops we don't need more cops he's explicitly saying that but that we want reinvestment in things um that um that might prevent crime in the first place. Uh, But but Christina, did you hear anything new or notable in Brandon Johnson's approach? I mean, uh, you know, and feel free to challenge my premise here, but it feels like the argument he's making, it does seem like a challenging argument for voters to hear if you are concerned about crime. Um, and, um, And he seems to have made it successfully, and I haven't heard a lot of other Democrats even try. Is is that fair? Well... Yes and no. I mean, I I love the way Natalie laid out sort of the reality of crime for certain communities and the perception of crime for others. Because this was so much of a part of our New York mayoral debate, Kai. That's right. You know, Eric Adams, you know, in a more philosophical language, said the same thing as Brandon Johnson. He he said, you know, you use the Desmond Tutu quote very often, saying, you know, instead of pulling people out of the river, we need to go upstream and figure out why it is that all these people keep falling into the river. And he would lay out, you know, we need to look at housing, we need to look at jobs, we need to look at schools, and figure out why it is that these people keep getting caught up in in the storm and ending up sort of trying, you know, almost drowning in the river and we have to constantly pull them out. That was sort of his metaphoric language that he was using. And I feel like Brandon Johnson put in a much more explicit policy conversation to it because, you know, now New Yorkers who don't want more policing are saying, well, Mayor Adams, you know, if we're pulling people out of out of the stream, you know, why is it that we're defunding our libraries? You know, those are the conversations that can be complex. But in New York, a place, you know, that is similar to Chicago in the sense that we have seen spikes in crime, but oftentimes those spikes in crime aren't from the neighborhoods where people are most concerned about crime, right? It's not touching them. It's the perception of crime. And I think it's it's a nuanced conversation that I think a lot of Black voters can and do have in making a calculus as to what type of leadership they want. Natalie, you mentioned that Brandon Johnson benefited in this runoff by picking up the Black voters who had been behind Lori Lightfoot, who was the incumbent mayor. And we have to say that all of these questions around crime and policing and access to jobs they all really tortured Lightfoot, who, you know, was elected as a progressive as well, but lost so much of that support. And Natalie, you've said that gender is actually relevant to her defeat as well because her temperament was critiqued. Talk about that. Sure. Well, let me lay out that Lori Lightfoot has a prosecutor background, and I think her nature must be pugnacious, And she didn't get along with a lot of people. 
and she was seen to pick fights with allies. And so some of the alienating that she did was by her own design. However, Chicago voters seemed to like bullies because Richard M. Daly and Rahm Emanuel had that reputation too. So, you know, someone once said to me, so we we could deal with King Richard, we could deal with Emperor Emmanuel, but we couldn't deal with little Laurie. And, you know, I, I Jane Byrne is the last female mayor that we had, and she had one term also. So I think multiple things can be true. I don't think that people like seeing women in a kind of um, uh, offensive or even defensive <laughs> nature. And that's not talked about as much. I think it's going to take some some time. I mean, there's some op-eds that are, that are coming out, uh, but there was so much discontent with Lori Lightfoot across the board that a lot of people aren't willing to step back and say, wait, you know, there is a racial and gender component. And also, you know, she's openly gay. And I can tell you the memes, are they supposed to be made, you know, in jest, like calling her Larry Lightfoot? making yeah. fun of her in different ways. Um, that's the other layer that's, that exists as well. Yeah. So we, we, we've got to move on and hit a couple of other things here, but Paul Vallis uh, had the backing of much of the black political establishment after Lori Lightfoot left the race. Um, and Natalie, you wrote um, a, a story after Brandon Johnson's victory, which said that, you know, the black establishment may now have to face what you called a reckoning. What, what did you mean by that? So the numbers are showing that city council members who supported Vallis are not in lockstep with how their communities voted. You had former Congressman Bobby Rush, you know, come out for for Vallis. Um, a lot of other established people here who a national audience isn't necessarily going to recognize those names, but retired state officials, city council, and you know. A, a congressman, a, a congressman who just retired this year. And, you know, I would bet that Paul Ballas was doing what politicians do and making promises. And these folks thought that they were going to be on the winning side. And they were not. No. So I think it shows this disconnect. And what does that mean? Because they might have said, well, I was ready. I wanted to bring things back to my community if Paul Ballas was, was in. Okay, so... Now what do you, how, how do you deal with a, a Brandon Johnson? But does it suggest a, a divide between, you know, what voters want and what the black political establishment wanted? It does. And does it, does it show that the voters are actually more progressive? Um, I think a little bit of it is, I want to go with who the winner is. Right. And this person, Paul Vallis, raised double the money of Brandon Johnson and he also had the support of the business class. They were pouring money into his campaign. So people are making a, a, a calculation. And the, the black establishment made a bad gamble. In his victory speech, Brandon Johnson had a riff um, in which he cast his campaign and his victory uh, as the onset of a new coalition that people have people on the left have dreamed about since the civil rights era. And, and here's, here's what he said in, in the victory speech. It was right here in the city of Chicago that Martin Luther King Jr. organized for justice, dreaming that one day that the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement will come together. 
Well, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement has finally collided. We are experiencing the very dream of the greatest man who ever walked the earth. So, Christina, that's a that's a big statement. Um, but what <laughs> what about this black and labor coalition, both in Chicago, but nationally? Is this is this, in fact, a thing that has emerged? And if so, what does it change? Well, we know that Chicago has a very long, deep and unique history with with labor. And so we'll see. I mean, this could be, you know, the beginning of more um, detailed conversations. I think a lot of cities are having, as Natalie laid out, you know, a reckoning with the black establishment because so many in the black establishment were once sort of the progressive, you know, sort of outsiders. And over decades of not passing the baton to new leadership, they've become calcified and they are strategic Mm -hmm. in how they decide to uh, back candidates, especially during runoffs and in primaries. What I think more and more of the black establishment is finding out is one, you're getting young people like Brandon Johnson who aren't gonna wait in line until the black establishment passes their baton. Because right. we're seeing in many cities across the country, they're not passing the baton. We're, you know, and we see this also in the Democratic and Republican parties, you know, a calcified leadership at the top, septuagenarians, octogenarians. I'm absolutely not trying to be ageist, but there is something about yeah. refreshing the bench, right? And growing new new voters and and new new sort of warriors in the cause. I think, you know, what Brandon Johnson's victory also showed some of the black establishment is that, you know, going with the business class, going with the presumed winner is not the power to the people. You know, what actually wins elections are the votes. And so, you know, it's the door knocking, it's the organizing. So when we think about the tradition, the long tradition of black activism and black voting rights, it has been about the hard labor of earning every single vote. And we know that labor has worked you know, in conjunction and taken much of that organization and much of those organizing principles from the black civil rights struggles to to win um, in various cities for their candidates. So once those two forces come together for good, you know, we also have to remember not all labor unions are the same, you know, like... There's uh, a very difference between the police union and the teachers union here. Exactly. So, you know, they have their own organizational structure in police unions and they they mobilize for violence. But, you know, when you have sort of the power of the people, which Brandon Johnson has you know, laid out in his victory speech, um, it could signal, you know, we have sort of the AOCs, we've got the Ayanna Presleys doing the same thing. Um, We could see a different type of municipal election, you know, and we also have to remember this is a runoff. And as as Natalie reminded us, incredibly, dare I say, embarrassingly low turnout, uh, not as embarrassingly low as New York, I will say. But, you know, we also have to get people back into voting for municipal elections um, in ways that we just have not seen in the past, say, two or three decades. And I have a couple of other observations there. I I think that there was an underestimation of how powerful unions are in Chicago. I mean, this is the home of (laughs) union organizing. So I think there was a dismissal of that by the Vallis supporters. And then secondly, with the establishment, um, it wasn't just age because there was a variety of establishment people who went behind Vallis, maybe thinking they were going to bring bounty home to their communities. Um, But then you had folks like Jesse Jackson Sr. and his son, who's a new congressman, Jonathan Jackson, who backed Brandon Johnson. Um, But you had, so it, it wasn't, it wasn't clearly along age lines. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you have Brandon Johnson, who is squarely a Gen Xer. 
who had a great ground game. And so he was able to win despite being outspent. And to be sure, you know, he had money, he had commercials. It wasn't as if, um, you know, he he wasn't on people's TVs or, or radio stations, but the ground game was very different with the house parties, the organizing, the door knocking, and that's what he got from being a union organizer with the teachers union. We will have to leave it there. Christina Greer is a professor of political science and American studies at Fordham University. Natalie Moore is the race, class, and communities reporter for WBEZ in Chicago. Thanks to you both. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Guy. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Theme music by Jared Paul. Mixing this week by Mike Kutchman. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us. 